Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Woven Energy Podcast with me, Joseph Sykora, and Damon Smith. And we are here to talk about shamanism from the ground up. And uh, it's been a while. Uh, we, you know, I'm, I'm usually spend a bit of time planning these episodes out, but I haven't had a chance to do that today, so it's going to be a bit off the cuff. But uh, Damon, it's uh, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, we've both we were, been very, very busy. Yes, uh, crazy busy. We were talking about the eight trigrams before. Um, we had we had a few episodes on the on the eight trigrams, which we are going to continue with, um, aren't we? At some point, but yeah. today. Today's main theme is uh, Buddhism. Is that correct? Yeah. So we well we said we would do this. Uh, yeah. I don't know, as a precursor to talking specifically about Mongolian Buddhism and I guess Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which why, is very very closely do, related. Yeah. Why do we want to talk about Buddhism at all? I th- I th- well, it's it's a good question. You know what we've said is that shamanism, when uh, human beings became civilized, hid itself within. Uh, various mainstream religions as a mm. as a kind of self-protection mechanism. One of those religions was Buddhism. And I also think that in terms of how Westerners perceive things from the Far East, there are a number of assumptions that are made. Mm. Um, for instance, I, I, it's very rare, very rarely I've seen a Westerner with negative opinions about Buddhism, for instance. I was about uh, to say the same yeah, thing. And uh, yeah. my impression is with, with, with people, when you talk about exoteric religions, you know, it's like Christianity and stuff, people don't tend to lump Buddhism in with that. And they tend to talk about it as in terms of, oh, it's it's all spiritual. It's it's more spirituality based. And they have these uh, these strange terms for it yes Um, and i think that knowing where buddhism came from and understanding really what it's about um from a shamanistic perspective is important you know what we said is we 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 tried to talk about shamanism and we we don't try to tie it down very much to we talked about particular peoples uh, we talked about the Avenka people and the um you know mongolian buddhism and and japanese buddhism and you know the, but the, the sorry mongolian sh- shamanism and japanese shamanism which are closely related to mongolian buddhism and japanese buddhism uh, mm. and it's very, very difficult in this day and age, unless you are interested in, uh, you know, the very small number, tiny, vanishingly small number of hunter-gatherer peoples who are still around in the world today. It's very, very hard to talk about shamanism in a pure sense uh, because it's been mixed in with all of these other traditions. And I think understanding something about those traditions is useful not not in a positive way but in a negative way and so if, if you subtract for instance if you were to sub- subtract mongolian buddhism uh 
from Mongolian shamanism, then you would end up with a pretty pure form of shamanism. Um, so it's more like that kind of a subtraction exercise. That's the reason from a shamanist's point of view to understand it, rather than that learning Buddhism is in some way going to help you with your shamanism. You know, we've said meditation uh, that doesn't involve imagination can be a bit helpful when you start off. Yeah. But it's just really to give a different perspective. What kind of a thing is it that shamanism embedded itself within? Now, you've got to remember that in terms of uh, the Far East, the the major tradition of the Far East that, sh- that shamanism inve- in, embedded itself within was Buddhism, um, you know, Buddhism is in all of those places um, where, not all of the places, but a lot of the places where shamanism is in the Far East. So Japan, it's uh, a major Buddhist country to this day. Mm. Um, Thailand, um, uh, China until very recent times was the world's main Buddhist con- country. Um, but there was a lot of survival of shamanism in China, still is to a tiny extent what happened to buddhism in china was it suppressed communism happened to buddhism in china so if you you think about (laughs) china (laughs) china is a china is a a very historically has been a very insular country there have been time periods part of the song dynasty for instance when uh, and part of the ming dynasty when it was an outward looking nation uh Mm. and it, it um and then very early on as well um, were, were engaged with the other parts of the world in trade in an active and enthusiastic way. But for the vast majority of China's incredibly long history, it's been quite an insular country. And a lot of the, the traditions that China has had have grown, f- f- by its very nature, they've grown up inside China um, endemically. With, if, with if little like. outside influence. Yes, but there are two major exceptions to that. Two major, major exceptions to that in terms of outside influence coming into China and having a major impact on Chinese society. One of those exceptions is Buddhism and the other one is communism. Mm. Um, and there really aren't very many more um, that are anything on like that scale. If you think about the massive impact that communism's had on China, um, that in, in if you look at the whole of history, that's tiny compared to the amount of impact that Buddhism's had on China. Um, because you've got to remember, really, before Buddhism arrived, now we're talking about the, the, the first the first Buddhists arrived in China around the first century AD, um, but it really took off much several hundred years later than that, or a few hundred years later than that, um, in a period after the fall of the Han Dynasty. Um, you can think of the Han Dynasty. Probably everybody's heard of the Han Dynasty. It's really famous. And if you ask Chinese people about their various dynasties, it's all it's all like Han's number one and Tang's number two, or vice versa. But it's a it's a dynasty that's treated with a lot of respect in China. Now, if you want to think of the the, the time period of the Han, it's very very easy to remember because it's virtually a carbon copy of the Roman Empire in the in mm. Europe. Uh, the same time period, the same kind of level of domination of of its society, and and on the, actually the, the hand was slightly bigger than the Roman Empire, but you know on the same kind of scale. Um, so, so that that's a, a 
The Han was a period of, of internal stability within China. What effect it had on other peoples is a different matter, but it was a period of internal stability. And for and the ignorant among us, like myself, what kind of time period is this? So this is, this is uh, this is sort of from um, from it, it crosses the zero BC AD time barrier about four hundred years over the over that time period that over that time barrier just like the Roman Empire. Right. So so I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll get the exact dates up. Uh, um, so Buddhism was um, Buddhism was the main sort of societal normal no, way of being. Not in the hand. Not, not in the hand. No, it, it it was the fall of the hand that Buddhism was there in the hand. So the time period, as I said, I actually actually nailed it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I said it's about four hundred years spaced either side of zero AD. It's actually two oh six BC to two twenty AD. Um, there you are. So my uh, memory's not as bad as I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and um, and so. Um, so no, uh, Buddhism did appear in China um, during the Han. Uh, the, the first, I guess you would say, Buddhist monks or whatever you want to call them, Buddhist emissaries, appeared in China during that time period. Um, but no, it was actually the fall of the Han that made Buddhism popular. Uh, I think we talked previously about um, the fall of the uh, Shang and the Zhou dynasties, uh, the, and then there was a, a sort of period of of turbulence within China. A kind of warring states period, if you like, before uh, and the spring and autumn period, which which gave rise to a lot of the the philosophies that. We haven't really talked much about China. We've done a lot on Japan and a bits and pieces uh, yeah, on I think Mongolia. We did, I think we did do it. We talked about Confucianism, for instance, didn't we? Mm. So Confucianism appeared originally during that that period of turbulence, um, and so did Taoism, really, um, in terms of it becoming becoming a, a, a factor of Chinese life, if you like. And um, it, it, so that was the first period of instability. And then we have um, we have the Qin, the Qin dynasty reunified China. It didn't last very long. But then the Han dynasty did last a long time as with China fairly unified. And it and then that collapsed and there was another period of instability uh, with lots and lots of different dynasties, uh, things like the former Qin, confusingly named former Qin in the Northern Way and various dynasties of this type. Yeah. This this second period of instability in dynastic China, this is the one in which Buddhism started to take off. And a few of those, those kingdoms uh, after the fall of the Han, uh, particularly the former Qin in the Northern Way, those, those guys, the, the leadership of those you can call them dynasties. I mean, they didn't control the whole of China they, like the Han had. They were just little bits of China. Uh, well, really, probably quite large by our standards, but you know, China's a big place. Um, yeah. They they became the, their leadership became very interested in Buddhism and actively sought out uh, Buddhist teachers. Uh, and actually, the, the story goes. I mean, how true this is or not, I don't know. But the story goes that the leadership of the former Qin. Who are not to be confused with the Qin Dynasty, just a confusingly named dynasty. Uh, they they started to conquer. Uh, they started to conquer to the west in order to find Buddhist experts, experts on what they call the Dharma. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, the the law of the Buddha, L O R E, if you like. Mm. 
and they started to to conquer areas of territory to the west of China, leading to Chinese expansion. You know, China wasn't as big in those days as it is today, leading to Chinese expansion. In order to do that, they had to put military into military people out to the west. And you, when you, you say west in relation to China, um, are you talking like India? I'm talking about what parts. Where? Parts in the west of modern China, it, but it wasn't China in those days, if you see what I mean. That's what I'm talking mm. about, yeah. And so putting that military in had, a, had an unexpected uh, knock-on effect because they had to pay those guys and all the officials and bureaucrats and all that kind of thing and support them and all that kind of stuff. That pushed a lot of wealth and, and goods into the west of China, and they came in contact with uh, traders from further to the west and and... This, they started trading with them, and then those traders traded further west, and they traded further west, and they traded further west, and they went right through the Middle East. And, you know, they they, they ended up, the Han were involved in this as well, this this, this as well. They ended up actually connecting their, their ancient capital, Chang'an, which is, which is basically modern-day Xi'an. Um, with with the Roman Empire or the, what was left of the Roman Empire, the remains of the Roman Empire, um, and and it, I guess it was still Roman Empire in those days um, because the Roman Empire survived longer than than two or two twenty AD, and uh, they started trading, and so this is the silks and and uh, porcelain and all those kind of uh, Chinese artifacts. They started trading them. As far as the, you know, as a Roman citizen, you're going into your local market and buying expensive silks. I guess you'd have to be a wealthy Roman citizen. Buying expensive silks from China, you probably think that at the far end of the what became known as the Silk Road, um, China's also um, similarly placed to you. They're trying to trade Roman goods. Um, they're trying to trade in Roman goods and you've got this long, very long distance exchange going on in what became known as the Silk Roads. But of course, the Chinese weren't thinking about it like that at all. They were just trying to conquer territories to the to the west of China in order, partly in order to find these Buddhist experts, these Buddhist preachers and, and bring them back into China so they could teach people the Dharma. Um, quite interesting. Um, and that'll give you an idea, insight into Chinese culture as a whole and, and its view uh, it, it's quite insular view from the Roman Empire and long distance trade which became known as the Silk Road and I guess from the European end and from China, China's end we're just funding our soldiers to go out and conquer new areas of Chinese territory um, in order to in order to bring back um, expertise you know I don't think they needed the wealth so much they were pretty wealthy you know so so yeah, so that's pretty much what happened, and and it was during the the period immediately following the Han that that Buddhism started to take off because obviously they had these preachers going round, uh, they had these preachers going around China um, and Buddhist preachers and Buddhism, like all successful exoteric traditions, baseline traditions, is very very good at sucking people in. Uh, yeah. civilized people in and Buddhism did ex- in China exactly what uh, Christianity did in uh, around the same time in, in Europe you know so well, it's interesting you say, you say uh, like all exoteric religions uh, with Buddhism because I think people have a, uh, an, a, a I was about to say misconception but a conception shall we say that yeah. Buddhism um, is an access point to the more spiritual 
area of these of you know shamanism and um, spirituality. Yes, that's right. Um, they, but, they think but, that there's a, a lot of people feel that there's some kind of link there, and I guess there is. But I, I would say that that link is much more to do with much more to do with shamanism having post embedded itself within Buddhism than mm. it has anything to do with the Buddhist tradition itself. The Buddhist tradition itself is very, very baseline tradition. It's based on baseline premises. It's fundamentally based on the philosophical idea that life is about suffering. Um, and that is, that is, you know, that's about as far away from shamanism as you can possibly get. So when uh, you say these are, this is at the heart and core of Buddhism, are we talking yeah. about Buddhism of this day, this age? Yes, absolutely. Well, particular branches of Buddhism. I'm, I'm uh, just trying so, to get a clear idea of so you, you know what that Buddhism, Buddhism means. Yeah, so Buddhism itself started off a lot earlier than this. It started off in uh, about um, 400, 500, um, between 400 and 500 BC. Um, and am I correct in thinking this came from India? This is uh, an offshoot yes, of Hinduism. But, isn't but it? well, it was, it was, it was northern india it it was you know again india's borders were were different and there was lots of small kingdoms and very all fluid really the long and the short of it is yes um it, it also would be you know would have been in the area of countries like nepal and places like that or what we would call the, those sort of countries now but which, which would be part of conceptual india in those days um and but Buddhism today is, is seen, obviously, because of its massive history. I mean, it was a much, a fairly substantially longer history, about 400, 500 years longer than Christianity, for instance. Um, it, it's embedded itself and it's given itself a strong presence, but in terms of its origins, Brahmanism, uh, or what became Brahmanism, um, it, it, it's, it's really, in terms of its, its philosophy, it's really a branch of that. Um, and it's... Um, it's it's kind of there are certain things. The reason I call it baseline tradition, there are certain things within Buddhism that are held to be self-evidently true, and one of the major foundational uh, parts of that comes from the the, the Brahman tradition, the, the, if you want to call it the Indian tradition. Yeah, well, Brahmins uh, were the intellectuals, weren't they? They were the the high the became, high thinkers of the day. Became so, but I mean, the, yeah, yeah, became so. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that the, to those guys, um, the, the historical Buddha, the, the founder of Buddhism, um, the, the historical Buddha was deeply steeped in that tradition. And a fundamental part of that tradition is this idea of reincarnation and, and things like ideas like karma. So what I'm saying is that if, if Buddhism hadn't become fabulously successful as it has done and the same with the christianity hadn't become fabulously successful then buddhism would probably be viewed as a as a you know if there weren't many buddhist um followers in the world or, or buddhist practitioners in the world it would be seen as a small fringy offshoot of brahmanism in the same way that christianity in the same situation would be seen as a small fringy offshoot of judaism um, very much the same kind of thing. It's just the fact that they were so exoteric that they became 
uh, and if you want to think of it another way, a force into themselves. Yeah, that they they were particularly exoteric branches of these things, and that's why they became so fabulously successful. Mm. Um, we said before that the the exoteric religions they they target the leadership of countries. That's how they manage to turn countries on mass. They they're not stupid enough to go out and try and convert you know a a country like China over to Buddhism by talking to millions and millions of lay people they they target the leadership and that's that's what they did and and very very successfully um and as i said they became the um they became the um uh, major external tradition that's influenced china um very very it's an exceptional thing because china is so insular for an external tradition to come in and have such a huge impact on on a culture is very very rare and unusual and um, so, so basically, uh, it spreads, that- doesn't it? It's like I remember in the very first episode of the Woven Energy podcast when we were talking about how shamanism, uh, the difference between shamanism and a typical religion would be shamanism's almost like somebody's taken a pepper pot and sprinkled it over the world. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, right. whereas religion spreads from a point. Um, it, it's yeah patches isn't it, it it's a bit like it's a bit like bacteria on a petri ba- ba- dish ba- i was it? about to say bacteria but i was <laughs> yeah, like yeah yeah. Wait, yeah. Wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so so yeah so i mean buddhism is is a is a great tradition one of the world's great traditions and you know i, I don't want to belittle the buddhist achievement because you know uh, it, as a shamanist you know it, it's usually we view these these things as as hiding places you know we view them as as a, a sort of cloth that you put over the top of the something when you don't want somebody see, to see it so there's this uh, there's this new tent emerging called I mean, buddhism where all yeah. these exoterrorists are thinking oh yeah. there's somewhere new we can hide all our but if, all our yeah, knowledge. yeah absolutely but if you're into art for instance if you're if art is one of your interests then then the buddhist art tradition will keep you or will keep just studying the buddhist art tradition would keep you happy for several lifetimes i suspect um, because these these traditions they they gain uh, because when they, because they can become powerful and they get powerful advocates. That's what happened in China. Very high ranking people started actively pushing Buddhism because they were very often they were genuine Buddhist converts, and those are the people who can afford to commission great artworks and and this type of thing. And so, so yeah, sorry, go on, sorry. All, all I was going to say is that so this this tradition of Buddhism. Um, Although it came from India, um, you, I, I really think of it as something that was built by China. China um, at one time had more Buddhists than the rest of the world put together. And arguably, in terms of the cultural attitudes of the Chinese people, still does. They probably, very, if you did a survey, most of them would say they weren't Buddhists. Because they're not religiously Buddhist, but in, attitudinally, there is, there is a, still a strong influence of Buddhism in in Lingus. China, yeah. and you know, I can be even more controversial and say I can see major Buddhist influence on Chinese communism. And I guess you, I could say that the thing that makes Chinese communism different, for instance, from Soviet communism, uh, are two things. One's the imperial tradition, which which it absorbed. Um, you know, with things like Mao Zedong, uh, perhaps uh, Deng Xiaoping, actually mm-hmm. affect becoming emperors of China in in all but name. Um, and um, the other one is um, uh, in terms of 
uh, well, it is Buddhism, effectively, in terms of the attitudes. You know, the, the idea of communism in Russia, in Soviet Russia, was all about uh, the proletariat uh, rising up and overthrowing the powers that be. Um, in, in Marxist-Leninist theory, they, they, it, was, it was the workers who were going to do that. They were the ones among the, the ordinary, the common people, who were, had, had achieved a level of sophistication, the workers in the factories and, and what have you, the industrialised city-based workers. Um, it was, it was um, those guys who were going to rise up and overthrow, um, overthrow uh, the ruling power, which is what effectively happened in 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 the Soviet Union or what became, Russia, which became the Soviet Union, and mm-hmm. that's pretty much the model for most of the countries that became communist around uh, following that that the, the initial Soviet. Um, the initial establishment of, well, Russia as a, as a communist country. Um, but of course, that's not what happened in China. Uh, what happened in China was a very, very, there was that view in China, and it was very, among the communists in China, there was that view, but it was it was pretty unsuccessful. Uh, when you view, say that view, you're talking about Marxist-Leninist? Uh, about the, uh, the, the, the factory workers, the oh. workers, and in workers' commerce, being the ones who overthrow the ruling powers, uh, of course, the ones who overthrew the ruling powers in in Chinese communism were the common people out in the countryside. It was the farmers, you know. Uh, effectively, it was it was it was the it was the supposedly uneducated, unsophisticated people that were leveraged in in establishment of the success of Chinese communism, and that that initial division between uh, the, the the sort of Russian style communists and the the uniquely Chinese communists, uh, if you look at the, in terms of the attitude of being evangelical with the people out in the countryside, that is something that the Buddhist tradition had done with its monasteries and what have you for, for well, a couple of thousand years in China. Um, and so Mao and, and that, that part of the communist movement within China effectively replicated that uh, quite successfully. Um, and um, and and so effectively, I think Buddhism still still does have a lot of influence on on China. And and you know the knock on effect is because China was such a powerful country for a long period of time, and it effectively ended up being the uh, the Zhongguo, as they call it in China, the central kingdom, the central the central country of of the world as they saw it, but as we would see it, the Far East. Mm-hmm. All these other nations at various times gave them tribute, um, you know, Korea and and Japan during a certain time period, and you know, and 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 took a lot of influence from China. So of course, you know, those guys, those guys, Buddhism, those guys got Buddhism as well. Uh, and of course, Southeast Asia is, is very, very still very, very strongly. Buddhist in many ways, so so major success. So um, it is a is an important thing to know about. I guess coming back to the point about you know what is it really about? It's it's about it's about ultimately about suffering and and how to relieve it. Um, as I said, it, this is why Buddhism took off in this, even though. Buddhism arrived during a period of stability. It didn't become popular until a period of instability. Instability, came yeah, yeah. When everybody was indeed suffering, and Buddhism's got this great message about suffering. You know, life's about suffering, but something can be done about it because suffering ultimately arises from desire. Uh, this is so. If you quash desire, 
then you quash suffering. Uh, this is effectively the core of, of Buddhist um, Now we're getting into the territory of warnings for Buddhism, aren't we? Because let's say I'm listening to this podcast, I'm new to shamanism, I'm getting excited, I want to learn shamanism. I've got yeah. all these different things shouting at me, and there's this new shiny little object called Buddhism, and I might choose to explore it. Um, this is yeah. the stuff that we need to be aware of, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're in that place, I think you're in a minority, though. I think I would suspect most people in the West know way more about Buddhism than they know about shamanism. That's that's my experience. But if you're in that place, I would say, good, that's a good starting point. Um, <laughs> okay, the other way around. Then. Yeah, yeah. Let's say um, I'm a let's say I'm a Buddhist and I'm steeped in Buddhist tradition. Yeah, you and, probably. Uh, and I'm like, okay, I want to already... shed all that and I want to get into the good stuff, the real stuff. Oh, well, the if that's true, but I, if if you were a long-term Buddhist and you are steeped in buddhist tradition i think you've already turned the podcast off by this point um and you're not listening <laughs> i'm trying hard here david <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but so so in terms of so i know i understand what you're asking so in terms of but really it's i'm not i'm not trying to criticize buddhism for the sake of it it's just so that you can understand the difference between shamanism and buddhism mm. um and I, I can explain where that confusion arises there are various ways we've talked a lot about chalisti right uh, yeah, <laughs> episode seven, eight, and nine. I think I don't think anybody could criticize us on not covering Trichilisti at least on a, in a, a baseline level on this podcast. Yeah. So, in terms of um, in terms of Chilisti, there are various models, various analogies that are used in describing Chilisti, and you know, you know, back time states are the, the, the empty vessel is a great one. That's the one I like. The cup, the chalice, you know, the Holy Grail, all that kind of stuff. That's mm. the one I like, yeah. But there is another one which revolves around fire. Um, and I think that one of the things that people have noticed is that there's, there's um, in the West, there's, there's an ancient, um, ancient Greek philosopher called Heraclitus, and he talked about fire a lot. And, you know, the, 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 the analogy that you empty your cup, um, you can think of the, the human spirit um, on various levels. Um, so, for instance, the Chinese use various different words to talk about the human spirit. Uh, they use shin, uh, which is like a deeper level of spirit, and then they use yi, which is more like the intention, what the spirit gives rise to. And I think we've said um, that that uh, distinction, you know, the intention, in, in exotericism, when we become very baseline, we start to take active control of that ourselves. And it's not really arising from our internal spirit as it would in, in shamanism, but it's arising from our deeper spirit. It's, it's arising from our logic, from our strategy, from our culture, from our, our learned behavior, from what we've described as the miasma on these podcasts. Mm. And the fire analogy rather than the chalice analogy where you quash this internal fire if that internal fire is a representation of if that internal fire is a represent is taken as a representation of the miasma generated uh, intention within yourself then that fire quashing that fire is a good analogy for um is a good analogy for chalicity. The problem comes when people take that internal fire not as an analogy for miasma-generated uh, intent, but instead for the soul, for the internal, the underlying spirit, um, the the um, the thing that that ultimately um, gives rise to to the active qualities within life and to 
to the um, ability of a shaman to integrate with nature in a very, very intimate and, and extensive way. And so the, so this analogy of the fire, I think, gives rise to a lot of this confusion because when you when you quash the miasma-generated intent, the miasma-generated strategy, when you quash that, that allows you to extend outwards into the world or, mm. and for the world to, it, to enter into you, like filling up a cup. But if you try to quash the underlying desire, the under, if you want to think in scientific terms, if you try and actively quash your limbic system, that is cutting yourself off from nature. And mm. so do you follow what I mean? So uh, what, yeah. it depends what you're using that fire for. But this analogy of fire is used a lot in Buddhism because yeah, well, uh, it's, as it's, said, it's, it's the going up into the mountain um, on your own for 20 years and sitting and facing the wall and meditating and doing and, absolutely nothing for 20 effing years um, <laughs> yeah it's possibly. that it's that isn't it possibly it's, that's probably a, quite an extreme example mate but yeah, <laughs> some people do 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 that but but the, the, my point is what are you doing in that meditation are you trying to quash design because you know buddhism buddhism's underlying has two underlying premises one that arguably came from the buddha which is that the life's about suffering and the desire is the root of suffering and if you manage to quash uh desire or, or some people call it attachment if you manage to quash that then you can break out of the cycle um, of samsara um, the, um, the 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 point with that quashing is it's all based on that old brahman brahman intuition which is about rebirth it's held to be self-evidently true that you're going to be reborn as something else. And this is where karma comes into Buddhism. You're going to be reborn. If you're, if you're not good, if you're not um, good in, a, in a, uh, a sense of, you know, what a Buddhist community would view as being well-behaved, you could come back as a gnat or a cockroach or something like that, you know. <laughs> because the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to achieve nirvana. And nirvana is about breaking out of that cycle of rebirth. What the Buddha was concerned with, the historical Buddha was concerned with, was, oh, we keep getting reborn, you know? How are we mm. going to put a stop to this? And he felt that if if people become... That, that, first, that old problem. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Keep getting reborn. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. yeah it'd be nice Let's to come up with a solution to this strange <laughs> yeah, <yeah>. problem. <laughs> so, yeah. And so how do you do that? Um, there, there are many ways to be a Buddhist. I mean, one one way to be a Buddhist is to try and, you know, there's positive and negative karma. It's just to try and collect lots and lots of positive karma so you come back as something nice, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and to avoid negative karma so you don't come back as a cockroach, basically. Um, that's one way to be a Buddhist. Uh, that you could think that's a lay Buddhist, but another way to become a Buddhist is is part of that old Indian uh, ascetic tradition, where you literally try to cut off all of your attachment from the world, um, and quash the internal fire because that 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 internal fire is what drives. They believe that internal fire is what drives that ongoing cycle of rebirth. And you therefore reach a state of nirvana where you are cut off from all of that and therefore you don't get reborn. Um, and I mean, obviously, another thing we should say about Buddhism is that, you know, 
like all exoteric traditions, you'll be hard pressed to find two Buddhists who exactly agree on what Buddhism is. So, you know, there may be some people, some some open-minded Buddhists still listening to the podcast thinking that's not exactly well, and that's not exactly right. My my point is, I'm giving a, a you know, I, I I've spent decades um, uh, working with people who are uh, Japanese Buddhists, decades and decades, uh, and and are heavily involved in that tradition. Uh, what I'm really given an impression of is what the average person, the la- the world over, um, who's involved in Buddhism, believes. And just like the average person the world over, what they believe about Christianity is not the same as a, a sophisticated theologist would believe about Christianity. This is the same in Buddhism as well, yeah. So I'm trying to give a, yeah, yeah, yeah. an average position, yeah. So so in terms of that 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 two that, that those two different paths to being a buddhist um actually you know in terms of the vast majority of people in the world there'd be most but lay buddhists would be concerned with more with the karma kind of thing than breaking out there because you also get in in buddhism we you get this we're not worthy kind of thing um zen for instance uh, a lot of involvement with zen which is which is a chinese school of buddhism um mm. Uh, called Chan, uh, but it, it became popular in Japan. I always associate Zen with 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 um, mindfulness and just just meditation in general. Yeah, well, I, I could have that wrong because <laughs> you're a Westerner, mate. I mean, Zen is a, is a is a tradition that stresses meditation, various other techniques that techniques that you could say have some sort of shamanic origins. So you could say that the Chan Zen tradition has some shamanism embedded in it. That's a re- obviously I, I that's a retrofit as far as I'm concerned. It wasn't there originally. Um, uh, you know, shamanists have hidden their stuff within within Zen, but. In terms of um, the point I was making, in terms of the social dimension of that, Western adherents of Zen, you know, most of the Westerners who I've met who are into Zen, they're very, very much into this meditation stuff and all that kind of stuff. What I've seen in the Far East is that they say they're into that, but actually seniority within Zen tradition, in, in within Zen institutions and, and how enlightened you are perceived to be in Japan, for instance, if you're part of a Zen tradition, in my opinion, is much more based on how much credibility, how much social credibility you've established within the group and very little to do with your actual um, your actual progress with, for instance, meditative technique. Um, and I've often called it Zen and the art of establishing my credibility within the group. And you get in, in Zen, as you get in other, in other branches of Buddhism, you get this we're not worthy um, kind of attitude among the laity. Um, oh, we could never achieve enlightenment. Um, because, you know, only the great master such and such can do that kind of thing, you know. Mm. Uh, basically, when what they call enlightenment, to me, is chelicity, or is a form of, you know, could be... Stage one! Form of it's stage one, yeah. <laughs> but they'll never get there because they're not worthy. They're sort of self-restricting. Remember what we said about the miasma? The miasma restricts people through self-policing. It gives them yeah. attitudes and things yeah. that make them feel not worthy, and it self-polices. And here we have it in Buddhism as well. Um and the people who are involved in those traditions, it's very much a social dimension. It's very much a miasmatic tradition. But that's not to say there aren't, there isn't hidden within it shamanistic technique, but it wouldn't be the vast majority of people who are practicing that shamanistic technique in a shamanistic way. It wouldn't even be 
you know, you couldn't even go on the fact that somebody was very, very senior within a Zen tradition. Um, somebody seen as at the, the top levels of Zen tradition, you couldn't take that as an indicator that that person would be practicing their their uh, technique in a shamanistic way. Um, my experience of some, not not Zen, just Zen, you know, one of my areas of interest in my life has been, we talked about the Shinshukyo, the Japanese new religions, which have been the four religions, are they, founded, yeah. founded by shamans. Most of them were founded by shamans in relatively modern times. We're talking about 19th century for most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have these, but you have these same attitudes because cultural Buddhism is massively strong in Japan, and it has influenced these religions. Now you could say some of those religions didn't have much Buddhist influence, or these these sham, originally shamanistic groups didn't have much Buddhist influence on when they very first started, when they first started off. But it didn't take long, just like it didn't take long for Christianity to influence esoteric groups within the West with increasing amounts of exotericism. It was exactly the same in Japan with with Buddhism and, and with these these Shinjuku, these these new they call it they translate it as new religions. Uh, but they have the we're not worthy thing. Whereas when they first start off you know, some of these traditions, their founders and the very first generation of their founders' disciples were seen as bolshi, uh, seen as as disruptive by the China, by the Japanese government. They they caused all sorts of mayhem. But if you look at the just a, just less than a hundred years later, for for a lot of them, if you look at their followers now, just the opposite. They are pillars of the Japanese community. They wouldn't be causing any trouble at all, and they. But the, the, their explanation of why they can't do, and also most of them have stopped practicing shamanistic technique. There are a few exceptions. Those people who are those exceptions get frowned upon within those groups. Their explanation for why they're not practicing the shamanistic technique that the founder of their own group practiced and their disciples practiced is oh we're not worthy we're not great like those people were we're not we couldn't possibly do that ourselves and a lot of these groups have a lot of these groups have actually um have banned these techniques as i said that that these groups were founded by shamans i can't even but they've actually i I can't even even contemplate why that it just makes no sense yeah it's crackers well, it does from a from a social engineering point of view, it makes perfect sense because you these things are about control, aren't they? They're about maintaining the in this Well case, it becomes it, like that, doesn't it? It becomes like that over time. Um and yeah. I think you said once that uh in in a certain folk religion that, that, that you know a lot about, um it happened very, very quickly. The this this uh, exotericism very quickly. Yeah, within within twenty within decade, years, decades, twenty, 20 yeah. years of the the death of the founder. Yeah, easily within twenty years. Yeah, uh, quite. It's interesting. interesting how hierarchy creeps in, though. It's 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 like, um, but but it goes back to this 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 concept that we've talked about shamanism on this podcast, and we've got to twenty eight episodes, and we've barely scratched the surface. Shamanism is one of those things that is so experientially based, you can't write it down in a book. It. it yeah. There's there's no there's no way for somebody else to say yes you're doing it right no you're doing it wrong you can have a discussion about it and you can infer from that some conclusions but you can't yeah. you can't directly get it so when you come to these folk religions and it turns exoteric is that just something that's natural because because of this this inability to get direct like answers and we, we we're all about answers aren't we we all we want yes and no's we want to that's right things yeah. in boxes. That's right. 
Um, yeah, that's right. Maybe we can rec record an end to this another time, but I've been invaded, so... Um. Uh, okay, so we're back. We had a little bit of an interruption yesterday, um, but uh, we are back and uh, we're going to try and finish this, this episode off. So, Damon, we were talking about um, the exoteric nature of the folk religions and how quickly they turned exoteric and i was asking you why that was the case and whether that was to do with the fact that learning shamanism is so exper experientially based you know there's no rule book to say you yeah. yes or no you're getting it right you're getting it wrong i was just hoping to get your opinion on yeah that. yeah absolutely the um there's a number of reasons i guess first first in terms of the size of the community Esotericism uh, and shamanism are very, very difficult to teach or to convey to large numbers of people. Um, you know, the, the traditional shaman uh, with the shaman's apprentice is kind of one-to-one, -one, right? Um, mm. And when you're talking about the success of religions like Christianity and, and Buddhism and, uh, you know, uh, Islam and... Um, I guess you you would say those religions that have become mass society religions in the world, it they need to convey their teachings. Those religions need to they convey their teachings not to one person but to millions of people, yeah. uh, and and so you you have to baseline that. You know you have to give rather than helping people to along a path you know a, a, a teacher of shamanism as we've said before is not a teacher a teacher of shamanism is more of a guide it's it's really interesting sorry to interrupt yeah. but it's like when um when you were teaching this to me and 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 other people in our group it was one of the most frustrating things because i'd always come to you with a question and i'd always be like damon i need i need an answer to this question <laughs> and you'd be like well, Joseph, and you'd sort of stroke your beard and it'd be a really kind of strange answer and I'd have to go away and think about it for a long time. Um, yeah, because it was never the answer I was expecting and it was never a yes or a no. It was never a categorical thing, yeah, because which I always the, found really interesting and frustrating answer, at the same time. Yeah, the answer has to come from you, right? The answer doesn't come from the, your guide in, you know, if, I'm, if I was to create an exoteric religion, I could give you a bunch of things to believe, couldn't I? You know, yeah. Um, I think I could, you know, for instance, if I created an exoteric religion and I said that the universe was created out of um, a, a large rainbow um, and the, the, the colours of the rainbow coalesced into the, the planets of the, of the solar system um, and that the most important colour in that process was blue and that in order to achieve enlightenment, uh, Joe, you should start wearing the colour blue and believing in the, the, um, the god of the blue sky. Uh, then, you know, the, the, you, you can ask me that kind of question, what kind of colour should I wear? And I'll say, okay, yeah. wear blue, because it represents the god of the blue sky, who was the most important of the, you know. But then I take that and I go, right, I know where I sit now. Yes. I will wear blue. Uh, you could, you could extend. Done. You could extend the idea because the people in in the neighbouring state they believe that the most important colour was orange, uh, and I guess we could go to war. Conflict. We could go to war with them over that. Yeah, um, and it's this this type of thing, you know. So, so you know, it, it, so in terms of the number of people, 
giving people a, a list of things to believe is a lot easier than giving people a bunch of activities that will enable them to uh, gain knowledge and gain answers and gain understanding themselves from nature. And you know what I mean by understanding, uh, you know, not just understanding in the mind, but understanding in the body and the spirit and the mind, all acting as, as, as one entity. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's at one level. Uh, there's another level in, in which is related, which is when populations become large, people think that or believe that or seem to have the general idea that somebody needs to be in charge and somebody needs to sort out to manage the population. And there are two ways of doing that. Um, one is to... Well, you, you cut people off from nature, can't you? You can, you yes. Can put yourself in, you can put yourself as the uh, authority to, to, to access God rather than yeah, that, God in a metaphorical that's kind of the, sense. That's kind of the clever way, but there's an even simpler way, uh, which is, you know, that the first emperor, we talked about the Qin dynasty, uh, the one that reunified China after the, the, the Warring States period, Spring and Autumn period. Um, those two periods are really the same thing, just a, a big period of turmoil in early China, we said a lot of the stuff that, that you know, that, that took off during that period, Confucianism, Taoism, this type of stuff. Um, it was a really influential period for the initial kickoff of those those movements, if you want to call them movements. And then then we had the Han Dynasty, where it was reunified by the Qin Dynasty, and, and then the Han Dynasty came along 400 years, contiguous with the Roman Empire. And then there was another disruptive period after that, during which Buddhism really took off. Um, and so so these periods of, of turmoil are where, are where these things really get their impetus. But if you think, if you put yourself in the position of a ruler, um, you can do, <clears throat> there's a number of approaches you can take, but if you look at what Qin Shi Huangdi did in his approach, his, his approach was very much false. It was like, I'm, I'm the ruler of you guys, and in order to be reasonable, I'm going to spell out in detail what I expect of you as my subjects. Um, uh, actually, you know, my slaves, effectively, if we're talking about guys like that, a lot of this, mm -hmm. the subjects of the emperor of China over main generations, when they're referring to even very high-ranking people, um, you, you know, you're talking about even the highest-ranking people in China, when they're talking to the emperor, they would refer to themselves as your slave. They would, they would, they would refer to themselves in the presence of the emperor as the emperor's slave, even though they're some of the most high-ranking people in China. Um, Qin Shi Huangdi, uh, the first emperor of, of a unified China, if you like, he he believed in this idea of a, of a kind of uh, spelling out in detail what he expects of his subjects, and if they do that, then fine. Uh, but if they don't do that, then the punishment was incredibly harsh. You know, people are probably aware that, you know, it, at certain periods in time in, in China, you know, you know, you'd have your head lopped off for next to nothing. Uh, but the, the, as far as he death, was concerned, death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But as as far as he was concerned, it was like, well, I'm being reasonable. I've told you what I expect of you. I'm your ruler. Do you follow what I mean? And, and you've not yeah. done what I've told you, so you, off, off with your head kind of thing, you know. Uh, I'm sure there were so many rulers in the West who had a similar kind of attitude, you know. Um, <laughs> but but this is this is only one way to control the population. And remember, Qin Shi Huangdi, he was, he, he, and, and the Qin dynasty, they were very, very successful during the Warring States period, during a, 
a period of continual warfare. But when China was unified, after it was unified, uh, and the peace came along, they were not very successful. That dynasty really didn't last very long at all uh, until it was overthrown by the Han. And actually, the very first guy who who over the guy who led the Han and, and or created the Han dynasty and overthrew it was actually a guy who transgressed one of those rules. He'd let some prisoners escape, you know, and he was, obviously he'd had it, you know. He was going to have his head lopped off, so he, he, he legged it, he went and became a bandit and eventually overthrew them and founded a very long-lasting dynasty. But whereas whereas the Qin just used the stick, uh, you know, do what, do what I tell you or, or you, you've, you've had it, um, he used the carrot and the stick. You know, you, you can say the carrot was like Confucianism. It was like, um, you guys, we're going to give you this belief system that revolves around our social structure. And you guys believe in it. And you do you do what you do to keep myself, my, myself and my dynasty at the top of society. You do that because you believe that that's the correct social structure and you believe in your place within that social structure. You're regulating yourself, you're policing yourself. To be fair, the, the, the Han used both approaches. You know, for those ones who didn't really believe that and didn't regulate themselves, they still had the chin style um, stick ready. Uh, yeah. But... but they did, um, when they came to power, the hand did lessen a lot of the punishments. They did tone them down. I mean, they were still bad by modern standards, but by the standards of the day, the hand were thoroughly reasonable compared to what the chin had been. And where the chin had lasted next to no time, the hand lasted for 400 years. Yes, so you can see that the, the self-policing mechanism in a settled, stable state is a lot more effective for population control. And... Again, this happened, you had this period of instability when Buddhism took off, and, and Buddhism then became a great mechanism, like Confucianism, became a great mechanism for population control, self-control of the population. And then later we got the Tang Dynasty, which is another great period of, of, of stability within China, um, stabilized not just by Confucianism, but also by Buddhism as well. Um, and the stability of that huge population in that huge country uh, has been maintained by these things, effectively Confucianism and Buddhism over that time, you know, arguably religious Taoism as well, um, over that huge time span. And, and, you know, the fact that does this stuff work, this exoteric stuff work in terms of its effectiveness for population control and stability of a country? Well, that country, as we've said before, that country has more history than any other. It has this great unbroken culture going back thousands of years. Um, yeah. In terms of its effectiveness, I mean, this is irrespective of whether it's right or wrong or, or you know, from a shamless point of view, it's it's all pretty unpleasant stuff, and it leads to people being a bit sheep-like, you know, and and not not experiencing the full richness and variety of life. But that's from a shamanistic point of view. From a ruler's point of view, Buddhism and Confucianism are awesome because it means I can use my armies to fight other people. I don't have to control my population. They're controlling them themselves. Um, and, you know, I, Buddhism and Confucianism fulfilled this important role from a, from a ruler's point of view in, um, in the Far East in the same way that that Christianity fulfilled that role in Europe, yeah. So, so that's um, the, the 
you know, the, a, a couple of reasons why exotericism takes off in terms of large populations. Um, but also, from another point of view, it's just easier. It's easier yeah. to pick up and learn exoteric religion. Remember, when you're picking up exoteric religion in the world, usually you're a very young age and you're picking it up off your parents. Yeah. Um, picking up shamanism at a very young age is, is a, that's a tall ask. I mean, it's possible, but it's a tall ask because of the demands of becoming a shaman. They're very, very high. The, the bar is high. It's a tough thing. It's a really, really tough thing. And there's a lot of effort has to go into that. Um, um, and you know, not if, even within animistic societies, not everybody becomes a shaman because it is such a tough thing, and they have it easier than people in settled societies in terms of picking it up and, and, and understanding what it's about. Um, and so, from that point of view, just from the easiness, oh, do we have to have this shamanism stuff? It's so difficult. Why don't we just start believing stuff? There's that aspect as well, you know. So, if we were to zoom out um, and give an overview as to uh perhaps what why we're discussing buddhism here yeah we're warning we're warning people uh who are into shamanism ag against perhaps the path that buddhism can lead you down would that would that be a correct uh, assumption it's not it's not so much that i mean uh, uh, it, it, a warning perhaps um in terms of uh, you're right what you said before in terms of there is a perception that you know that that these Eastern spiritual traditions are a path towards understanding. Um, there may well be a path towards a certain type of understanding, but they're not necessarily paths towards shamanistic understanding. Um, so what, what I'm saying is when we come on to discuss other aspects of shamanism in terms of how shamanism has embedded itself within these traditions. Um, it's more like understanding what these traditions themselves are based on so that you can subtract that from the, what, from the traditions that are handed down within Mongolia, within China, within Tibet, within Japan, I guess we say a list of countries, well, Korea, Thailand, Cambodia, even Vietnam, just Burma, from a, you know. Even just from a little bit of uh, experience and understanding um, from shamanism, I could see what various... Um, how shall I say, exoteric religion, that the teachings from those religions were trying to say or trying to convey. Yeah. Quite yeah. easily, actually. It's not actually that hard. It, you know, certain religions, you have to dig a little bit deeper, but yeah. others are just there staring in your face. It's yeah. just, and, and it's just you know, obviously... Uh, and do you know that, you know, it, over time, you know, one of the things we mentioned there is that some of the, you know, the Shinshu Kyo, these, these, these uh, what people call religions, I mean, they weren't really religions when they were founded, but they rapidly became that. And there mm. were a lot of them starting in sort of 19th century Japan. There were a lot of them. Again, there was a lot of turmoil at the end of Tokugawa period in Japan when Japan had been ruled by shoguns, military generalismos or dictators for, for hundreds and hundreds of years and then all of a sudden that was gone um, and replaced those sort of power vacuum. There was a lot of turmoil at the end of that period um, and again that's this is this turmoil period when there's these these shamanistic groups started arising in Japan and there's lots of them you know you think uh, Konko Kyo, Temi Kyo that we've we've mentioned before. You know that there's a lot of these kind of organisations grew up uh, during that time period. Um, they um, they rapidly became exotericized, 
But you got to remember, they were growing up inside a, a country that had a long tradition of Buddhism, and not just any other kind of Buddhism. Japan was at the extreme exoteric end. So the distinctions are made in, <clears throat> in, in Buddhism in terms of different types of Buddhism. Um, and, you know, to me, it, it, this kind of distinction is not really very important, but you can say that different types of Buddhism lie at different positions on, on a sort of scales, shades of grey towards mm. a, unbelievable levels of exotericism at one end and, and a sort of esoteric leaning at the other end. So the sort of more esoteric leaning branches. So if somebody, yeah. if somebody wanted to explore one of the more esoteric leaning branches, could you direct them where to look? Yeah, where? Mongolia. Mongolia. <laughs> we already mentioned it before. <laughs> Mongolia, Tibet, yeah. But the, 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 the point I was trying to make in terms of these distinctions that people make about different types of Buddhism is with those shamanistic groups growing up in Japan, the particular flavor of Buddhism that was popular in Japan at that time and had been for a long time is one called Mahayana Buddhism. And that yeah. type of Buddhism was way out there on the extreme exoteric end of Buddhism uh, to the point where, the, you know, the, the original ideas that, you know, life's about suffering, something can be done about it, and there's, there's a, a, an eightfold path towards enlightenment, um, th this type of thing that the historical Buddha kind of came up with or formulated out of the Brahmin tradition. Uh, that kind of thing had had extra layers of stuff heaped on top of it, exoteric stuff. I mean, for instance, the, the, the ideal of the Bodhisattva. So, you know, there's this, there's this concept that somebody can achieve nirvana, enlightenment, and break out of the eternal cycle of samsara, the, cycle, the ongoing cycle of rebirth, by, by quashing all that desire and attachment that's inside them. Um, they heaped another layer on top of that, so that so now there are these guys called bodhisattvas who can achieve enlightenment, but then they choose not to break out of sansara in order in order to have compassion and to help other people move towards enlightenment. Uh, it's what I call it, it's like salvation by proxy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you go even further. Um, certain certain Buddhist groups in Japan. Who, who ended up in a place where they, they you know, the, the Buddhist Buddhism has sutras, which are uh, the, the Buddhist law, and they, people read, historically, people read these sutras, um, and um, they, they would explain the Dharma, the law, and, and the historical, but then over time, more and more sutras were accumulated, and a lot of these ideas, these increasing amounts of exotericism were embedded into more and more sutras. Um, and... Um, it, it, you know, some of these extreme end exoteric groups start thinking, well, I don't even have to read this sutra. All I have to do is believe in it and I will be saved kind of thing. You know, so you get them chanting chants like Namu Myoho Renge Kyo, you know, um, you know, for instance, a, a chant in English, it would be something like, I, I uh, worship the wonderful law of the Lotus Sutra, yeah? And you just <laughs> chant, chant that over and over again, and, and you, you gain good karma, you gain, uh, you, you move forwards in life, and you move forwards in your spiritual tradition, simply by chanting the fact that this sutra is wonderful, uh, you can gain positive karma without actually reading the thing, you know, <laughs> let alone understanding uh, yeah. what it's saying, you know. So um, my, my point is that the context in which these shamanistic groups appeared in 19th century Japan 
um, was this heavy, exoteric Mahayana type of Buddhism. It wasn't the sort of Buddhism, the slightly less exoteric type of Vajrayana Buddhism that you get in, in say, Mongolia or Tibet, or even the Theravada Buddhism that you would get in, you know, originally in India, but, you know, now, now nowadays it would be Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, those sort of places. Mm. Um, so, so th- these, these, shamans appeared within a heavily exoteric framework and their their initial groups of students were deeply deeply steeped in Mahayana Buddhist law Um, and so they felt uncomfortable with what they were being taught I guess and they started to adapt it to make themselves feel more comfortable based on their upbringing since children which had been a Mahayana Buddhist upbringing on the whole very strict like this is this, that is that. Yeah, and, and that's not to say there aren't interesting things in Mahayana Buddhism, but, you know, but the, the thing, I mean, again, Mahayana Buddhism was more successful than any of the other flavors in terms of, you know, the most exoteric flavor of Buddhism was also the one, guess what, with the most followers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had China, China, you know, um, that, that's kind of where, you know, when, when Buddhism was at its height, they, they had the most followers, China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam had a lot of Mahayana Buddhism, you know, and, and so the numbers of followers in the other places, so the other types of Buddhism, still exoteric, but slightly less exoteric, um, uh, uh, small in number in comparison, you know. And, and of course, just like Christianity, what's really, really interesting from a historical point of view is how spectacularly unsuccessful Buddhism was in in its its homeland in India, um, and how spectacularly unsuccessful Christianity was in its homeland in what we would call the Holy Land. The, the, these two great world religions have this in common: they're spectacularly successful in foreign lands, and spectacularly unsuccessful in the place where they came from. You know, <laughs> where, where, which is quite so, interesting. So that would be because everybody where they where they're from, people would have their own complete miasma, and it would be a perversion into that. But Absolutely. When they took their religion to other places, they had their opportunity to exercise the whole going yeah. after the leaders, yeah. going after yeah, spreading it. And and in Tibet, of course, that there are there are other, there's Bon, uh, which is the native uh, native Tibetan religion, um, which is uh, which is an, a, a a bit like Shinto in Japan. It's it's it was a more exoteric outgrowth of an original shamanistic. Um, tradition, and so Bon in in Tibet is heavily heavily enmeshed with the Vajrayana uh, Buddhist tradition uh, at an early date, and of course Mongolia got its Buddhism from Japan. So when we talk about you know Mongolia had its own native shamanism, um, but you know it also imported Buddhism from Tibet, and that Buddhism that it imported from Tibet had. Tibetan born, uh, Tibetan, uh, an outgrowth of Tibetan shamanism embedded within it. So Mongolia effectively had two major shamanic traditions that that were imported. So go to Mongolia. Um, yeah, I mean, going to Mongolia, you, you know, dress warm, <laughs> especially if you're going in the winter. Um, but you know, and and you know, when we we talk about Mongolia, you know, we we have to take into account communism again. We said, you know, Buddhism and communism were major 
uh, imports had major impact on China, while Buddhism and communism had major impact on Mongolia as well. But the difference is, of course, Chinese China had its own homegrown communism, whereas Mongolia imported very much Soviet communism, very Stalinist type of communism, you know. Yeah. Uh, so go to Mongolia and, and, you know, see what survived. But the same with China, the same in Mongolia. If is, you're it at- still, is it still a communist... No, absolutely not. After the after Russia ceased to be, you know, the Soviet Union started falling yeah. apart and the Warsaw Pact started falling apart in terms of losing communism. Uh, Mongolia was the world's, was, you know, after Russia, it was the first one to become communist. It was also the first one to stop being communist. Um, and yeah, they thought, hey, we're not having any of this. After Russia, yeah. So, <laughs> so effectively, they followed Russians' lead in both directions. The really, really interesting thing, or one of the really funny things about... Um, uh, democracy, you know, Mongolia became a democracy very quickly um, after the fall of communism in Russia and the fall of communism in Mongolia. But uh, the great quote from, I think the first president, democratically elected president of Mongolia was a guy called Ochebat. Um And um, President Ochebat was interviewed uh, by the press about what democracy meant for Mongolia. And he says, well, we have to find out what it is first. I thought that was very funny, you know. <laughs> This is after having been democratically elected. His first one of his first statements was to best find out what democracy is before we we start making pronouncements about. It. I thought that was so honest. And you know, one of the things I've always liked about Mongols, uh, they are so honest. Those people, you know, uh, lovely, lovely people. But you know, when I'm talking about Mongolia, when I, I talk about Mongolia, I'm talking about what people would call out of Mongolia. That's the independent country of Mongolia. I'm, yeah. I'm not talking about Inner Mongolia, which is a region of China. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that's been a, a fascinating, uh, historically, ba- historical based episode with lots of um, background information. I guess with uh, yeah, some yeah. nice interplay between Buddhism and shamanism. So, yeah, uh, we'll call it a do there. But uh, next episode, I think, uh, what, should we should we revisit the eight trigrams for an episode? Yeah. Why um, not? I mean, we we want to we want to get into the sixty four hexagrams at some point, so we could yeah, we could start moving well, in that direction. It's going to take us years at this rate, isn't it? We need to try and get get this back up and running. Well, yeah, I think we need to get, I mean, it's going to take us years at any rate, even if we're doing one a week, but, <laughs> but I think we can, I think we can, um, you know, use this, use this uh, new episode. Um, I as, have been receiving a lot of emails, uh, people going like, where are the episodes? What are you doing? Um, well, that's, so that's we, great, we, we, you know, George. It's it, great that people want to want to hear what yeah. we've, what we've got to say. Um, really, it is, really it's grateful, to be honest. Really grateful it's, to those. It's people, shocking yeah. to me as well. It is it is quite surprising, um, but it's really it is it is very humbling. So we will be continuing these episodes, and we will do them. One promise that we can say is we'll do them when we can, and we'll hopefully get back to one a week at some point. Go to wovenenergy.com for your get started episode. You can uh, put, pop your email address and get on the email list. Um, and I think, uh, oh yeah, I was saying in the emails, I have received quite a few emails of um, people asking questions as well. So maybe we can just do one question at the beginning of, of an episode and sort of see if we can plough through them. Or, or we could do a mini, we could do another one of those mini ones and answer a few questions, you know? Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Awesome, mate. Right then. Thanks a lot, guys. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.